0: You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Herodimus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Joining us this hour is a woman I interviewed six years ago, Dr. Karen Shanark. Always curious what our amazing prior guests are up to, this is a chance for us to catch up on the emerging mind world, animal communication, and progress in the new paradigm, both in popular culture and academia. Dr. Karen Shainer joins us for a discussion of, among other things, her book called Bats Sing, Mice Giggle, The Surprising Science of Animals' Inner Lives with Jagmet Conwell, by Totem Books in 2010. Dr. Shainer is an adjunct professor of psychology and neuroscience at Georgetown University and a practicing clinical neuropsychologist in Washington, DC. Welcome back, Karen, and thank you for being with us.
1: I can't believe it's been six years already.
0: I know, and I I recently quoted your work in a book that I've been working on. But look, I thought it'd be a good chance for us to sort of do a number of things, as I mentioned. And I wanted to start with asking your opinion if you see trends in the general population regarding our state of mental and emotional health. And of course, this election cycle is a perfect time in which to talk about that.
1: Well, I think um, most of us realize there's just so much tumultuous reactions, and um, people are anxious. People are afraid. Uh, I, as a clinical psychologist, I'm constantly dealing with this. The unsettledness and the fear and the anger that is that is there, and it perpetuates itself. I think there are some very good things happening. Uh, we're also looking and becoming more aware of environmental aspects. Uh, we're learning more about ourselves. We're uh, learning more about the brain. By the way, my next book is on the electromagnetic brain. So um, there is a lot going on. At the same time, we are it's very, very challenging. And many people are about what's going to happen next. I'm not just talking mm-hmm. about the election, but in a way yeah. that kind of reflects the apprehension and the uncertainty um, and the lack of, I will have to say, spiritual guidance mm-hmm. for a lot of people. I think a lot of people, when I see patients who are um, anxious or depressed, there is always a spiritual disconnection as well. There could be a lot of other reasons. but um, So once again, getting back on track and saying, how do we reconnect with nature, with that around us, which is so magnificent, and with a higher sense of living our lives? Um, people are yearning for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and in your work, I mean, you worked early on as a student and then as a professional um, with Carl Prerum and Viktor Frankl, both great pioneers in psychology. How would you describe the basic things you took away from those years of collaboration?
1: Well, it's very interesting. Uh, this week on Thursday, I'm, having, I'm also part of the D.C. Psychological Association, I'm, their scientific uh, advisor, if you will, and we're going to go back to Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, mm-hmm. and his. he had a whole, um, he had a therapy that he used called logotherapy, and basically it was based on that connection, on that meaning that people need in their lives, but also that connection between people. He he was, I, I was very fortunate to um, take a class from him in the early 70s and also to get to know him a little bit. In, and uh, he was quite an amazing man um, and continued to be. So he had a great effect. Uh, Dr. Preber was my professor at Stanford years ago. And then I was very privileged to teach with him, co-teach a class at Georgetown University for 15 years. Wow. He just, he just passed away last year yeah. at the age of 95. Mm. So he has affected me. Certainly his work, the holographic brain, the work on brain waves. Uh, so in a way, uh, this book that I'm writing, it is taking his work and explaining it to not only the general public. I think in some ways the general public seems to get it a lot more than a lot of neuroscientists because we've been zeroing in on chemistry and molecules and um, drugs, if you will, and substances, instead, and now we have the technology to get back to the brain waves. Mm-hmm. what is happening. What if when we think, what happens to our brain? what are the brain waves? Uh, how do they all come together and um, they really our brain as I say, is an electric organ. So um, we are now we now have the technology to really show a lot of what has happened. Walter J. Freeman also, who was at Berkeley, who I taught with and, and who also uh, passed away recently, had been studying brainwaves because he was an engineer besides being a, a physician. And Carl Freebram was Walter's mentor as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I've learned a lot. I've been very fortunate to uh, learn from, from these giants in the field, if you will.
0: Well, I, and I remember when we talked, you were a former White House consultant and among 10 psychologists chosen by the American Psychological Association for its centennial celebration. And we talked about those Smithsonian lectures. They included the brain and consciousness, the dynamic brain, and the emotional brain. Um, and now you're talking about the electromagnetic brain. You know, when quantum physicists talk about the heart or the math Institute or other people speak of our fields interacting. I mean, this is why general elections or when a major global event occurs and everybody's yes. attention is focused on it, the random number generators at Princeton, their pair mm-hmm. study showed that there's cohesion and coherence and relatedness. When we're like just standing next to somebody, you know, our heart, as you know, the heart field actually emanates for some people as much as eight feet outside their body.
1: It may even be farther than them.
0: So talk to us a bit about <laughs> why, well, you know, you, you know, people will say, well, I mean, I'm one of these sensitives that really psychological term, an extremely sensitive person. I am one of those, or highly sensitive is what it's called, <clears throat> highly sensitive person. So for me, going to a big grocery store, you can forget my going to a concert. I can't go anywhere where there's big crowds. Um, it's It's so energetically overwhelming to me. It's not psychological. It's physiological. And until I got old enough to really understand that's why I always got so sick in crowds, and then got mature and old enough to say, "I'm not doing that anymore." Share with us what's really happening to us when we talk and communicate and are around each other.
1: Well, the in Eastern thought, of course, it's chi, it's key, it's, it's energy, and we certainly can show the frequencies of brain frequencies and the heart. I, I, it sounds like you have heart math people on your program. I have That's
0: in correct? the past.
1: Correct? Uh huh. Great. I. Have and, and, in fact, Dr. Prebrim was on their board. They have done amazing, very, very terrific work. Yeah. And, um, and the heart, of course, the heart waves are even stronger than the brain waves. And they all communicate with each other, amazingly enough. Our our whole body, in, in terms of the, the biorhythms, circadian rhythms... So there is so much going on, and most of it is going on at a non-physical level, at a at a frequency level, and at many times at a quantum level, especially in terms of entanglement, where um, at it, where two very strongly do you. No tang- entanglement in, in quantum physics?
0: I do, but perhaps okay. you'd like to describe <laughs> for like, us when we use these terms. You know, people go, well, I, I think I know what that means. How, what does it yeah, mean to it's, you? It's
1: very exciting. And, in fact, we know, uh, I mean, um, we know also different times it happens in the brain now, and, of course, it happens much more than that. It's, it's uh, quite a simple concept, but it totally is out of the way most of us have learned physics or, or science. And let's say you take two associated let, – let's say you have two photons, packets of energy. You have both uh, packet A and packet B, and, and they're closely associated in some way. And then you send A – off. It can be thousands of miles away it doesn't mm-hmm. matter, and you do something uh you send you send B thousands of miles away, and then to a you just you simply do something or or uh even observing it, but make some sort of change, and instantaneously, with nothing happening happening in between, b also changes
0: exactly. And
1: this happens, um, it happens very often. We used to think it happened only in minute ways. With Quantum physics only had to do with subatomic, something smaller than atoms. But now we know it happens in very large ways as well in terms of larger, uh, and, and certainly brain waves go into, even as we're using memory, we tap into entanglement at times.
0: Well, you know, it's it. It reminds me of just this thought of at the recent protests of the Tar Sands pipeline over um, sacred Lakota Sioux land. The buffalo showed up, and I I've been doing a lot on um, interspecies telepathy and communication. And as your book, Bat sing, mice giggle: the surprising science of animals' inner lives that we talked about back in 2010. Um, that this entanglement crosses all species in all life forms. I mean, some people say, oh, no, it's only if you have a human brain. And Mm. (laughs) it's, um, but I think it's important because you've worked, you know, with humans and you work as a clinical psychologist and you also, though, have studied all of these changes in um, how we're viewing ourselves and our consciousness. And I liked one of the things, it was probably a fairly old YouTube thing I saw viewers yours recently, uh, about the Vedic teachings being so much in keeping with what we're discovering in quantum physics about consciousness.
1: Yes, very much so. Um, it is very exciting, and if we just get beyond the material, Newtonian, physical level, there is so much going on around us. And the communication, communication between animals pick up on electrical communication. They zero in on the magnetic lines of the earth. We as humans have the same capabilities. And in fact, in other cultures, and uh, sometimes here if we allow it, uh, it, these capabilities are taken for granted. There's a aborigine, uh, there was a researcher's, worked with a young aborigine, five-year-old girl, and uh, wherever they took her, she could point out north. Mm -hmm. And these same scientists here, a bunch of them were at Stanford and Dinkelspiel Auditorium, all sitting there, and they were clueless. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not the same scientists that went to Australia to find out, but in general. And so we rely so much on our GPS, for example, when in fact we have a natural GPS. Unfortunately, back to your original question, what's happening to us, both animals and humans, our electromagnetic natural way of interacting with the world and with each other is being very disturbed by the technology we're bringing in. I've been, for example, fighting uh, smart meters
0: Mm -hmm.
1: here in in Washington, D.C. At least in Maryland, you all can opt out of. Uh, the smart meter, which is very injurious neurologically. Um, So politically, I had to get into some things because we just do not realize how we're mixing things up, how, in fact, we are not only confusing the animals in terms of their communication and their navigation, we're confusing ourselves.
0: I also, um, I don't remember, one of my guests was talking about the change. It was one of the physicists who was talking about the solar radiation having increased um, as we come into alignment with the galactic center, which doesn't happen often. I think it's every 27,000 years, like the precession of the equinox, and that there is more solar radiation affecting us than we have known before, and that for some for, for some reason, that what they were describing, and I haven't really followed up mm-hmm. on how true is this, um, that it was so excites, excitatory, meaning excites our, our nature so much, that what's good gets bigger and what's bad gets bigger, and that that's part of the stir that everybody's feeling, not just the geopolitics, not just the things we can observe, but mm-hmm. there's this actual physiological um, phenomena happening to us.
1: Well, different things do happen, and there has been, um, as, as far as I've, I've been studying the solar radiation. However, in much and last year especially, there there was more uh, getting getting close to us, if you will. Uh, at the same time, we do have some blockers, and those are magnetic lines that uh, that block some of this. And remember electricity and magnetism all work together they're always aligned with each other but they also if you have more of one sometimes it stops the other so Mm -hmm. uh, it it is and things are constantly changing i mean our earth is constantly changing magnetically
0: right Uh,
1: so those things happen well that's
0: another rumor and and then we have to take we have to take a break but here's another rumor i heard i've People have been saying for a number of years, and I haven't had it validated by anybody, that the Schumann Residence, the 7.5 hertz or 7.6 hertz of the Earth, has changed. And I have found no verification of that. But you'll keep bumping into that comment. Have you heard that?
1: I have heard that. And I, I'll follow up on it and get back to you.
0: Yeah, I'd be really curious how an expert actually might find out any kind of, you know, how, ver- how true it is or isn't. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, it's John Peterson from the Arlington Institute. We have speakers every month at Transition Talks in Berkeley Springs. Wonderful speakers that you can come and visit. You can find us at TransitionTalks.org. And you're listening to this on 21st Century Radio with Zohara Hieronymus.
0: John Peterson's Arlington Institute. If you all have never read his older book called "Out of the Blue: Wild Cards," it is one of the best books that explores what's unknown, what we can't predict, but how um, I think my takeaway from it: how our preparation is to cultivate our intuition. That's what I always say to my kids. It's you know we do live in very uncertain times. It's obvious. So how do we make ourselves feel? and actually be safer in a better position to help other people beyond ourselves. And one way is to cultivate our intuition. Another is to use our dreams wisely. Another is to pay more attention to the things we actually hear in our own inner voice, um, to do those things that we know are healthful, both for ourselves, for nature, for the environment— um, and then we end up seeing things that others might not see and noticing things that others might not notice. And our guest Doctor Karen Shainor, knows a lot about that because her book Bats Sing, Mice Giggle, The Surprising Science of Animals Inner Lives. It was written with Jagmet Conwell, and yes, it is online at our website century 21st21stcenturyradio.com. From 2009, we did the interview. Karen, how would you summarize um, that relationship between all sentient life?
1: Before I um, forget, I do want to say that the book has been updated. Oh, good. And we added a chapter um, for the latest paperback, and it's called De-Stressing the Distress." because we're talking about animals and stress. We're talking about humans and stress. We're right. talking about animals and stress and the stress that they're going through for the same reason. So, well, not elections, but um, but because of... They're the,
0: already they, warning us. The <laughs> they warned us. Donald's <laughs> on his way. Run.
1: <laughs> Who knows? Um, but anyway, and, and of course it's, it's the same thing in terms of our circadian rhythms have been... Are out of balance because of, of sleep and because of too much light or because of electromagnetic influences that are um, kind of uh, overwhelming us. And uh, it's somehow, but meditation, sitting quietly, uh, getting good sleep, and certainly going along with what you're saying, listening to our intuition. I. I I was going to write a book. I haven't had time to do it. It's called If You Don't Listen to the Whisper, Watch Out for the Two by Four.
0: No, very true. <laughs> but you're right. and And you point out, and I think it's important that we talk about it, you know, relative to the election, and I haven't talked politics, and I don't do that anymore as part of my profession. And I'm grateful that it's not my full time gig anymore. But there are things that I think are worth pointing out about this particular situation in this country. You know, forget what you may think about the candidates per se, but it seems so much to me a division between the left and the right hemisphere in such a clear manner. And you point out that we have emotional brains. How does a woman's emotional brain different from a man's?
1: You know, I um, don't like to get into the gender differences because it's more of a continuum. Okay. And certainly there are hormonal differences, but um, certainly in most cultures, in this culture, women have been allowed to use our intuition more. Women have been closer aligned with communicating with each other and not setting up emotional barriers. However, I see men also when they're allowed to do that, and certainly from many other cultures, there is that intuition. However, I have... um, I was going to, Jack and I were going to write a book on the emotional brain after our Smithsonian lecture series, and it turns out this book, Bat Thing, My Skiggle, uh, came first. It mm-hmm. just kind of became compelling. It's kind of, the title grabbed me, and um, but certainly what is happening, and we're even seeing this in our emotional brain um, because of stress, because of um, just not Taking calm moments or meditating, and and, and, and finding so themselves. little place
0: for quiet. I mean, yes. just to go somewhere public, anywhere public now is so loud. Whether it's a restaurant, anywhere.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and um, and somehow, many restaurants pride themselves on the loudness because they feel that. People think they're getting a lot of people in there and mm-hmm. a lot of energy. But, in fact, we're overwhelmed. And our actually, our uh, emotional brain, especially the amygdala, which is a part of it, it's an almond-shaped part of our emotional brain, we have found that it's short-circuiting for a number of people. And it's even corroding, if you will, kind of breaking down. And there's thought uh, probably that some of the reasons for... Seeing more bipolar Mm -hmm. uh, disorders and certainly depression and anxiety is because the constant stress we're under and it's actually breaking down different uh, mechanisms and the physical parts of our brain at times. But most of all, we haven't. We have to get back to. I I say for our children, we raise our children with love, structure, and education. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And. Somehow setting up some kind of routine, some kind of structure, somehow, again, learning to delay gratification at times. I'm sure you're familiar with the book The Marshmallow Effect. No, I'm not. Okay, well, we'll do that sometime. It had to do with (laughs) uh, I happen to be. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. But the main idea was children at four years old who could delay gratification, say, well, I'll wait. For 20 minutes before I take, eat the second marshmallow or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, they were followed through life and at least for the next 16 to 20 years they did better in their SATs and then they were doing better in life in terms of being able to balance their life and in, in some ways, going along with what we consider success in, in this culture, but not necessarily that so much as a sense of confidence, a sense of groundedness, being centered, if you will.
0: Well, You know, it's so interesting. I was joking the other day to somebody. I said it, we, we have become such an uncivil society that just plain manners now could pass off as a spiritual path. You know, say thank you, (laughs) be kind, be generous, turn the water off when you're done, you know, help somebody who's in distress. That's the new spiritual path is our old-fashioned manners of the 1920s. It's extraordinary.
1: It is, and it's too bad that that has broken down because uh, we have to bring that back, that there is that civil interaction. The other part is also being able to, even for a brief moment, if you're passing somebody a street or the restaurant or something, just a brief, kind eye contact. Mm-hmm. Just brief, maybe a little smile. I mean, sometimes people think you're goofy, but <laughs> I think we are so into, we cannot interact, we cannot connect. In fact, People bump into us all the time because they're looking
0: at their cell phones. Well, you know, and that's another really interesting phenomenon with younger people. And I'm not talking about the boomers' children. I'm talking about people who are now, like, in middle school and mm-hmm. just sort of mo- and are growing up with these technologies. I was reading this study how the older ones don't think things have happened if they haven't learned about it on Twitter or Snapchat or whatever one of their little apps are. And I joked, yeah, it's like reality TV has affected everything, not just national politics, as mm-hmm. we've seen, but our younger children think that they are the news.
1: And, and and they think they must be the news. They have to be the news.
0: Yeah. That's part it's... of it,
1: too. They have to be on stage. Uh, at Georgetown, I have what I call a tech, tech-free zone. Right. The class is a tech-free zone. No computers, no cell phones. We turn off our cell phones, and uh, each – class twice a week, an hour and 15 minutes. Well, you and I teach cognition and I teach uh, cultural neuropsychology. Um, One of the students spoke for many of them when she said it was torturous Uh sitting there for an hour and 15 minutes without any technology. And they want to look down. They want to... uh, and so, once again, how do we create balance in our life? Listen, I love my iPhone. It's great. And when I travel, I it's terrific. Although, once again, we have to be careful not to – we have to be careful and realize a lot of the electromagnetic waves that are given off. We we have to be prudent in, in how we deal with all of the technology. But that habit of having a, having to be there and having to – be behind their computers taking notes, which they aren't taking notes. They are emailing each other. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. it's afterwards, I, and every time my students have come up and said, thank you so much. And also we start the class, we usually end the class for sure, with three minutes of meditation. Oh, just, lovely. Just three minutes. And um, they leave in a very different frame of mind, um, but we have to do this. We have to bring this back. And just an awareness of each other and, and realizing the humanity and, and the nature around us, we're disconnecting. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in terms of the physiology of the emotional brain, uh, of our brains. You can see it in terms of all of the personal angst that people are feeling unnecessarily, the, the fear and the anger.
0: And as we know, though, you know, these are contagious realities. You know, people think of disease as being the only thing that's contagious. It's a microbe, it's a virus, it's a bacterium, but thought forms are contagious. And yes. and so it's really, you know, when we have a culture that doesn't like silence, unfortunately, and it's actually in the silence that you find the answer to any question because the answers in the question. By the way, there's a wonderful book, and I interviewed um, Dr. Martin Blank, who wrote a book called Overpowered. Mm. And it's one of the best I've seen um, in decades, talking about the impact of electromagnetics on our physiology. And his conclusion, after looking at the research around the world, is that children under the age of 16 Mm -hmm. should only use... um, computers and cell phones for less than 15 minutes a day. I agree. I mean, well, that's, you know, that's not happening. And yeah. so it, but, but when you contrast that being like the truth about tobacco, when they knew and then pretended that they didn't and doctors promoted it, it's the same thing that's happening now with cell phones and the impact that we know and the increase in brain tumors and brain lesions and imbalance Um People know that, I mean, I use a cell phone. I don't use it like my kids do who don't have landlines, but.
1: You have to fight for landlines. Let me tell you, I've had to fight Verizon to keep my landlines. Really? That's interesting. I had to go to, yes, uh, go to the top and because they want, because they're copper lines and they don't want to keep them going. Oh, how very interesting. So, um,
0: Something back, new to do a show on.
1: <laughs> I want <my laughs> Listen, I have all sorts of ideas, but back <laughs> to what you were saying about cell phones and that. You're probably aware of the research that came out in May and June of, uh, from the National Toxology Program at NIH.
0: No, I'm not. Tell us about it. I
1: will, I will send that to you, also email it to you, and also Dr. Ronald Powell is really on top of all of these things, but it's basically that, that cell phones uh, and, and uh, basically very quickly cause cancer. Well,
0: they, you know, I can really, I notice the difference if I've been on the phone and I only basically use it to talk with my kids Mm -hmm. and send pictures. I love my iPhone for that alone and texting them, but I don't really do a lot of business on them. I try to do what I have to do on a landline. Um, But I notice the difference when I just move it up near my head. If I don't have on a little Mm earpiece, it really hurts. Like my ear hurts and it's hotter and yeah. So not good.
1: It's not good, and once again it's uh so but we don't want to hear this i don't I love my cell phone I don't want to hear that it's not good for me, but once again, if we look and say, how do you establish a way of living with something that's helpful without letting that good title to his book overpower mm-hmm. you
0: hmm Exactly. So when you then, you're you're sort of in the throes of this ever-changing landscape of younger people, and every generation's a little different. When you talk about things like Larry Dawsey's new book, The Mo- the, one, the One, The One Mind, I think was the title of it. Is that what it's called? Is that right? One Mind or The One? I think it's called One Mind. Anyway, the notion is is that we're moving towards unity consciousness and that there will come a time when telepathy, as it is for the Aborigines, is a very common um, element of the way they communicate, that all of us will be more attuned to one another and that that's already what exists physiologically. We're just not uh, aware of it.
1: Yes, yes. And and that's... Uh, there. After a while, we will... We're already plugged into the machines in terms of being able to uh, have our thoughts actually go through machines and, and create a movement of, of an arm or something like that. But if we would only back up a little bit and realize that we don't always, we don't need a GPS as wonderful as it is, although it can be not so wonderful, it can be not so accurate. Right. Um, but... In fact, we have that capacity. We have magnetite, for example. We, we have a lot of the same capacity for sensing where we are and being aware of it in terms of the magnetite, the magnetic little pieces that we, uh, iron oxide we have in our bodies in terms of the cryptochrome that we have in our eyes that birds use when they migrate to zero in on the magnetic lines of the Earth, we have just stopped, first of all, believing in them, <laughs> mm-hmm. and secondly, kn- knowing how to use them. This, this little girl, this little five-year-old I mentioned a while ago, the, right. the Aborigine, who wherever she was taken, she knew uh, in a dark room where she could always find north. Well, in that culture, supposedly, when they walk and greet each other, they don't greet each other by saying, how are you? They say, where are you? Mm-hmm. So once again, they are they are encouraging and teaching something that we all have the capacity for. And, and in many cultures for forever, we actually used it. Like intuition as well. Right. Intuition is gathering data together, which is very important data. And just listening
0: to it. And, and seeing the I patterns. I mean, you know, it's really interesting. We have to take a break, but there are two things I observed and I commented in one of the books I wrote, The Future of Human Experience, that really has made it so difficult for us as a modern humanity to do what that Aborigine girl did. And the first was when we were taken off the solar, the lunar calendar and given a solar calendar. <laughs> in Gregorian times and There's that one. took us completely out of an understanding of our biorhythms and mm-hmm. the circadian rhythm and and the tide that controls us so that was the first thing and then the second thing that happened was we went off of using Greenwich not Greenwich the meridian marker originally before Greenwich became the meridian marker were the three pyramids in Egypt or the Orion belt stars that pointed to the galactic center. And every sacred site on the planet up until around the 1600s, 1700s at the latest, was still using the galactic center to measure where their longitudes were. But when Greenwich Mean Time was established by the British Navy, we moved it to Greenwich, England, and left Egypt. And that's more than 30 degrees and a minute and 30 seconds or something as i recall and the significance is is that it took us out of our natural biomagnetic alignment with the galactic center to an artificial power broker's location in england disaligning in both a real way and in a super unconscious way what it was that was holding every sacred site together planet wide, whether it was the Templars of one century to the Egyptians of another to, you know, a mound building culture in this country. Everybody was connected through the same grid system and then we lost it. So I thought that both of those were sort of like, you know, the procession of like empires. There was the church and there was the British Navy. And both of them were responsible for unhinging us from those actual um, cosmic alignments that we had, our body with the moon and our entire consciousness with the galactic center. So I just thought I'd mention that to you if you've never stumbled across those things.
1: Think about even shifting from daylight saving time.
0: Yeah, what a day to There's comment. <laughs> My dogs didn't know the difference, I can tell you. When it was when it was 3.30 on the clock, it was 4.30 in their stomach, and they were looking for their food today. <laughs> we'll be right back. Dr. Karen Shainer is our guest.
1: This is Lisa Radov, Chair of Maryland Votes for Animals. Help us pass laws protecting animals. Visit us on the web at voteanimals.org. You are listening to 21st
0: Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. In 2009, on her book, Bats Sing, Mice Giggle, The Surprising Science of Animals' Inner Lies. It was written with Jagmet Conwell, and it's a totem book, 210 release. By the way, do mice really giggle? <laughs> they do.
1: If you tickle them, they do. <laughs> well, a, a lot of this research started out with, uh, actually, with, with rats. Except I couldn't say rats laugh. That didn't have the same same effect right yes um and the other part of it is they have found that mice also if if some of them if if a mouse is gone away and comes back and and when he comes back the other mice are so thrilled they actually there's a little bit of giggling that goes on then too
0: well, I remember, you know, when we talked about the book, and I've just finished a book of my own on interspecies communication or telepathy and dreaming with animals as well. Um, when you discover that they have consciousness, like humans have consciousness, just a little different, but they have memory and story and history and culture. Um,
1: and they can solve problems sometimes better than we can.
0: No no question about it. So when we look at what's happening there, what do you think gets in the way Um, You've been around a long time, Karen, in looking at the trends in psychology. What has changed all these years?
1: Well, I think uh, we have, first of all, what you mentioned before, that sense of um, community has broken down. And people are kind of afraid and don't know what to do with, with what is new, what is coming on. At the same time, there is also... To a certain extent, I and I'm going to blame science for this because there are a lot of scientists who say, "Well, it's only this way," and if you think in any other way, or if you think about intuition, that just that's folk, right? Folk tales, and uh, so sometimes we have we have used science in a very constrictive way, an unnecessary way, and um, perhaps I. Also in psychology, sometimes what we have done is looked only for the pathology and not accentuated the strengths that people have, the interconnections.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I was reading a recent article about the, the new therapy is happy therapy. You know, it's like we don't have to focus on all your suffering. You actually can focus on the things that bring you some joy.
1: And and that's terrific. The problem is, I think, is everybody thinks they should be happy, and everybody else is happy, and they're not happy, so they're unhappy that they're not happy. And this whole idea that we're all, in, instead of that becoming a byproduct mm-hmm. of doing for other people, of in, living an interesting life, of learning, of of appreciating, of saying, "This is a magnificent world." Well we you know, you point, a point on something. Awe. Well,
0: you're pointing on something that actually has been proven that when you express and show gratitude, you're actually healthier than people who don't express gratitude and live longer yeah. lives, you know. And yeah. it's interesting the other thing I recently read is it's a very American disposition to think everybody's supposed to be happy and we're all supposed to be happy. And the more you pursue that, the less you have of well, it.
1: It, exactly. It's the pursuit of gratification. Instead of delay of gratification, now it's the pursuit of gratification. And the idea is the more you have, the more material things you have, the more money you have, uh, the happier you'll be. Certainly there are thresholds, but at the same time, we have, we have uh, it, as, a, as a therapist, I keep having to remind people, you know, there are days that are more difficult than other days. There are things that we can develop emotional muscles. uh, Really, they would come in and say, I come from a dysfunctional family. I said, oh, you mean a normal family?
0: <laughs> right, exactly.
1: <laughs> I, we really have to put things back in perspective. Life is not always easy. Mm-hmm. We learn from hardship. We shouldn't create unnecessary hardship, but nor should we think that every day is supposed to be blissful, unless we're meditating all the time, and we will be blissful, and that way we will transcend uh the traffic or whatever. Don't it is. Do you
0: feel that, you know, when you observe both your student population and your patient population, that the pace at which everything happens and the speed at which people, you, you know, that our culture expects everything to be done now, whether it's drive through surgery, or as I joke, it'll be take home brain surgery kits pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, because of the sense of Fastness. There's not a depthness. There isn't depth. There's just sort of transience.
1: Everything is amped. Everything is amped up mm-hmm. and uh, faster and faster. And um, some of that has ended up being more efficient, but we also lose a lot in it in terms of the humanity being able to have a decent conversation with somebody or to, to reach out for a moment just to acknowledge another person because we're so busy doing what is more important to do, which we don't even remember what it is the next day because we're doing something else.
0: And so from a neuropsychological point of view or neurophysiological point of view, you commented that it's it's like an overload, that the system is. is overloaded with so much um, input.
1: And we short-circuit our mm-hmm. emotional brain. The amygdala has been shown uh, is on overload, and there are times we actually short circuit, and even uh, epilepsy is basically short circuiting, or it's it's, a, it, it's it's too much electricity that burned out a certain certain part. Uh, we just have to. We can still be. Interestingly enough, we know with those when we get into meditation, when we do the martial arts, and are aware of the energy around us. We can be much more productive, paradoxically, if we are centered and, quite frankly, if we know where we're going in the first place.
0: Well, you know, there was another study. I've been reading all these studies. I don't know why. They keep coming across my desk. Because you read a lot
1: and because you're... (laughs) Always
0: interested. I guess. Well, this one, this was interesting to me. It was about the most productive kind of work schedules for people. And and the study found, I don't even remember who did it, but the study found that people between the ages of 18 and 25 or 30 needed a routine, like go to work the same time every day and finish at the same time. The 30 to 45 set did better um, with the sort of the more of calling their own shots, working from home because they have families, raising children, all of that. But people, 50 plus, did best with a three to four day work week and not more. And and I was thinking about that because the older you get, the more efficient you are. You're not as distracted. And, and I thought, wow, if only we could do that, you know, of, of actually letting people at different ages and stages of life work in ways that are most appropriate to their development. It makes so much sense.
1: Well, and if we, that's very interesting. I'm not aware of that research. i have have to think about that one. Um, at the same time, if we start out with at least create that structure. You know, if you go into a, a mental hospital, you see the patients, even if they're heavily drugged, very often they walk with their hand along the wall. It's as if they're looking for some kind of tangible structure Mm -hmm. and i remind people we all need to a certain extent some kind of routine some kind of certainly we know in terms of sleep wake up approximately the same time every morning preferably go out for a walk in nature so that you can attune to the birds singing and to whatever is happening there so that your whole body your circadian rhythms and your biorhythms start to attune with the natural that we had talked about earlier Mm -hmm. um and, and we can do this. And then, again, trying to set up a schedule. Um, very often, too, we look for the quick fix. And the quick fix, of course, is that pill you're supposed to take that's going to make everything all right. But I always say there is uh, no medication without side effects, and that's because the medication blocks something, and it blocks other things mm-hmm. in your body. So... Very often people hope that that's going to answer everything, when in fact there are times for medication. But most of the time I tell my patients it's either medication or meditation. Why don't Let me teach you how to meditate.
0: Well, we'll leave it on that note and encourage everybody to do that, to look into meditation and quiet reflection, and that's really all it means. Thank you so much, Karen, for being with us. Bat-sing, mice giggle, if you want to follow up on that. God bless you all. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Courtner, And I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. And remember, we do need more love in the world.